You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we're excited to have you here. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. I'm going to put the baby bottle right here, so hopefully it'll be a visual reminder to you. Um, we'd love for you to pick one of those up on your way out to help with the Coweta pregnancy services. Um, most of you know that uh, we've been supporting them throughout this year, uh, monthly. Um, Ben's done a great job of purchasing items off of their wish list and making that known to us. It's really neat to see like how those things are kind of playing out and uh, ways that we're able to serve and minister, and so excited to be able to continue doing that, um, but also being able to bless them in further ways financially. Uh, through the um, the change that we can collect, so encourage you to be a part of that. We also have our um, Mother's Day gift in the back on your way out, so I'm going to kind of set this right here too as a visual reminder so you don't forget to grab that if you're a mom. Um, they are in a basket right here at the end of the, the center hallway or center aisle, so you can grab that um, on your way out too. We'd love to bless our moms uh, in that way. Exodus chapter 14 um, is where we're at today. We got about halfway through the chapter last week. In the last couple of weeks, we've really been setting up today's text, which we find in verse 15. And so uh, what has happened over the last two weeks is God has been positioning his people for his glory. He has worked and moved and orchestrated events to where as the children of Israel left Egypt, they were kind of set on one course, but God routes them the long way to the promised land. Instead of the direct route, which would have been super convenient, super easy, he forces them to go a different route, which we talked about was ultimately going to be the best route for them. It was a a route that would spare them uh, from potential trials that would be harmful to their faith. And so we see God's sovereignty in the ways that he guides and directs his people. Uh, Last week, we saw how he puts them in a position that feels like a trap, uh, so it's, a, it's a, uh, a return back to where they had just previously been. God has them camp in such a way where they've got the sea on one side and the desert on the other. And it's in that position where uh, the Egyptians start pursuing them. And so Pharaoh has a change of heart, which is all a part of God's plan because God tells us he's going to harden that heart. And so the Egyptians come fighting and pursuing and ready to take over the Israelites and bring them back into captivity. And so there's panic that sets in for the Israelites. They're, they're thinking, why would God do this? Why would Moses do this? Why is this what's happening to us? We should have just stayed in Egypt. We should have just stayed in slavery. And there's a lack of trust on their part. We talked about how for us today that God sometimes takes us on the long route. Uh, it's not the route that maybe we would choose, but it's the best route for us. We talked about how uh, even when we face twists and turns and traps in life, that these are opportunities for us to know God more and to acknowledge him more, uh, to trust him, to stand firm, to quietly wait for him to do all things well. And so uh, we pick up there. We talked last week, though, about how uh, we want to have a high threshold where when disappointments come in life, uh, we don't immediately start to doubt him and question his will. That we, want, we don't want to revert to, to fear and complaints. Instead, we want to have a higher threshold where we can look back on events like the Red Sea, these historical acts of faithfulness where God does deliver his people and take trust and hope that he's going to deliver us today too. So we'll pick up in, in verse 15 of chapter 14 as we begin to see now the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. 
And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians uh, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So we get kind of an overview of what's to come in this chapter. It says in verse 19, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels, so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Our summary sentence for today is Christians, we believe when circumstances are dire and tempt us to despair, we serve a God who makes Red Sea roads where there seems to be no way forward, giving us hope he will always part the waves and never leave us alone. For our kids, God always makes a way for his glory and his people's good. As Christians, we believe when circumstances are dire and tempt us to despair, we serve a God who makes Red Sea roads where there seems to be no way forward, giving us hope he will always part the waves and never leave us alone. This Red Sea story that we have here in Exodus 14 becomes a prequel to other significant partings of bodies of water in Scripture. As we continue through the Old Testament, we're going to see Joshua chapter 3. As the children of Israel finally get to the point of going into the promised land, God ends up uh, splitting the the Jordan River so that they can cross on dry land. And even in 2 Kings chapter 2, where there's a transition of prophetic authority from Elijah to Elisha, there's a parting of the Jordan River too. So we see this, this act in this miraculous work of God in other aspects of Scripture too. But what we have going on here is that Israel's being tempted to falter in their faith, right? There's concerns over uh, whether whether the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can still be trusted. They've they've been maybe hesitant and reluctant a little bit in Egypt. They were frustrated when things didn't come to play exactly like they wanted when Moses first comes before Pharaoh. Remember the the uh, straw was taken away from them and the brick making became harder. So there's, they've already seen some letdown in following this God. And now as they've come out of Egypt, 
Things seem really dire. I mean, there's, there's, there's a real threat that's coming, and there's no way to go. There's nowhere to go. There's, there's a sea and a desert, and, and this army is pressing in on them. There's nowhere to go for them. And they're tempted to, to falter in their faith because following God hasn't lived up to the expectations they had for it. Remember, we've talked before why people leave the faith, right? Why do people uh, follow Christ for a time period? Why do they come to church? Why do they claim to be Christians? And then walk away from the faith. Well, it typically is tied to disappointment. Disappointment in God, disappointment in other Christians, other churchgoers, disappointment in the Christian life itself. And that's what Israel's being tempted with here. Are we to be disappointed in God? Are we to be disappointed in the life that he gives us? There's a lot happening here, right? Some ways to kind of see this. One is Egypt is pursuing, Israel is panicking, and all the while, God is planning, right? Like there's, there's different perspectives of how these events are playing out. Is Egypt's pursuing. They think like, hey, this is going to be our victory. We're going to get our people back, right? So they're, they're, they're coming and they're pursuing and, and, and they think that victory is at hand. Israel's panicking because they think Egypt's victory is at hand too, right? Like they're, they're in desperation mode. They feel like this is going to end poorly for us. All the while, God is cool, calm, and collected, and he's planning the whole thing, right? He's orchestrating all of this. Pharaoh's coming. The people are complaining, right? Like they're, they're crying out to, to Moses uh, and really trying to complain to God via Moses that they're dissatisfied with this. All the while, God is commanding Moses, commanding him specifically to part the sea and to lead the people through it. The call to Israel is for them to be still and to let him work. Let's talk about some things they see and don't see. First of all, what they do see. They see an overwhelming threat that's bearing down on them, and there's no natural course of action for escape. Like that's, what, that's what's very visible to them. They can see that there's a threat coming, and there's no way out of it. There's no natural human way to get out of this. What they don't see is that God is working, moving, and positioning all of their circumstances for an immediate and eternal purpose. For an immediate purpose of their salvation, but for an eternal purpose, because think, I mean, this has been thousands of years ago. Thousands of years ago this happened. There's not a ton of things that, that we refer to and talk about from a thousand years ago. This event for them was an immediate impact, an immediate salvation for them. But it's something that still encourages us today right? Like it still encourages us today. Thousands of years later, God uses this to help us be encouraged that in our own life, whatever we're facing this week, when, when we're going to be pressed in with our circumstances and we feel there's no way of escape, there's no opportunity for delivery, that God is going to part waves and he's going to create roads through the red seas that surround us. And he's going to give us hope through this story that took place thousands of years ago. They don't see that. What they will see is provision and protection in the most supernatural ways possible. What I think is really neat is that God works in such a way here where it can't be explained in human terms. Like this has to be God, it has to be supernatural, him accomplishing this plan for his people. What they'll never see again is the threat of Egypt that seemed bigger than life for so long. For so long, Egypt had been their enemy. Egypt had been their oppressor. There had been no answer for Egypt. And now there is an answer. 
The Egyptian bodies will be laid to waste in the end of all of this. Think about the significance, right? They've seen God kill the livestock of the Egyptians. They've seen God kill the firstborn of the Egyptians. All the while, Pharaoh, the taskmasters, all these people have been allowed to live. Now these are the ones who come pursuing and these are the ones who lose their life. At the end of this story, when they're looking around on the beach and there are dead bodies everywhere, this is God's victory. This is his promised deliverance. This is what they will see in the end. Let's jump into the text and see number one. We're called to trust in a God who shields you from the enemy's plans. Trust in a God who shields you from the enemy's plans. The Lord, number one, stands as a guard to protect us from what the enemy desires to do, right? So back in our text, we get in verse 15, kind of an overview of what's going to happen here. Moses is going to lift up his staff. He's going to stretch out his hand. The sea's going to be divided. The people are going to walk through on dry ground. The Egyptians are going to follow in because God's going to harden their hearts. And then they are going to be defeated and God's going to get the glory. Well, how, that, how does that happen starting off? Well, verse 19, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them, stood between them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. There was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. There's this protective presence that really stands out in the story. Because remember, the Egyptians have pursued. They're ready to attack. They're ready to to gain control over the Israelites again. They're ready to take them back into captivity. The children of Israel are panicking. They're worried. They're in despair. And God, all the while, stands in between them. In this way, physically, they're able to see him standing between their enemies and protecting them. The angel of God repositions in order to create separation from the enemy and God's people. God's presence guards his people from the plans the enemy wants to carry out by positioning himself in places to protect them. And he does the same for us too today. We're not always aware of it. We don't always visually see it. But our God positions himself to protect us, to put himself between us and our enemies. He restrains the enemy in order to provide the time needed for his people to be what they need to be and to do what they need to do. Think about this. God is restraining the enemy. He won't let the enemy do what they want to do. He won't let the Egyptians do what it is they want to do. He holds them back. He keeps them at at arm's length. They they can't come through the gap. They can't come through where he's positioned himself. He keeps his promises. The enemy can't get to his people. Remember in Exodus 3, verses 7 and 8, God told Moses, he said, I've heard the cries of my people. I'm going to come down. I'm going to deliver them. I am going to take them to the promised land. This is him coming down to deliver them and to bring them to the promised land. Think about the fact that more often than we know, God shields us from things that could have happened, but never do. Think about that truth. What could have happened here? Egypt could have sacked Israel. Egypt could have conquered Israel. Egypt could have taken Israel back to Egypt and enslaved them for another 400 years. But it doesn't happen. Israel's aware of it, and they think that it could happen. So in this case, they are aware of what might have happened in God's provision. 
But man, I got to think that there's all kinds of times where God stands in the gap, stands in between us and the enemy. What Satan and his forces would love to do, God prohibits that from happening. He prevents it. He protects us. His presence stands between the enemy and his people. More often than not, we know God shields us from things that could have happened, but never do. He stands as a guard to protect us from what the enemy desires to do. Number two, the Lord serves as a light to reassure us that he's God and that he's in control. He serves as a light to reassure us that he is God and he is in control. He's not only a wall of protection here in this passage between his people and the enemy, he's a beacon of light that makes sense of life in the darkness. Look what happens here. It's, this is at night. This is at night when this is happening and when this is playing out. And the angel of God positions himself, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. There was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. We have this picture of of darkness and light happening at the same time. And I think the picture is that it's dark for the Egyptians as they wait out the night as to what's going to happen, and there's light for Israel. Light, because as we're going to see, they cross the Red Sea through the evening. They cross the Red Sea through the evening because we're told it's in the morning at daybreak when when the waves come crashing down and the Egyptians are extinguished. The Lord is this beacon of light. He's a beacon of hope for his people in the midst of darkness. Israel has light through the night to make it to the other side while Egypt waits in darkness until death comes in the light. We want to trust today. Trust today in a God who shields you from the enemy's plans. Now, there's a lot of things that are probably happening in your life, a lot of things that you wouldn't pick, wouldn't choose, wouldn't desire. And so in your mind, you're maybe thinking, Man, the enemy has gained a foothold. The enemy has gained ground. The enemy has snuck through. What we don't want to lose sight of is that God doesn't ever allow that to happen. He always stands in place for his people. He always shields them and protects them from the enemy's plans. All right? Number two, we want to go forward with a God who makes roads out of no ways. Go forward with a God who makes roads out of no ways. There's no way out of this for the people of Israel. There's nowhere to go. And it's precisely then when the Lord tells Moses, why are you crying out to me? Let's go. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Which we just kind of read over that quickly and we don't think about the fact that there is nowhere to go forward. There is no path out of this. As things currently stand, there is no way. And it's in that moment when God begins to describe the way that he is going to make. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. This happens in verse 21. Moses stretches out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Lord, number one, will position us intentionally so we can see him act faithfully. The Lord will position us intentionally so we can see him act faithfully. 
Note how the quality of faith of the people here is not mentioned, right? Like we don't know, like some of them are probably walking through on dry ground, scared to death. Others are maybe walking through confidently and, and uh, just totally reassured that God's delivering them. Others are probably walking through a little hesitantly. The picture that we have here is that it's not the faith of the people that's highlighted, it's the object of their faith, right? The God who is delivering them. Their faithful action was to cross and to keep their eyes on God as the object of their faith, which Hebrews eleven twenty nine 29 highlights, right? So that, that chapter in Hebrews that, that talks about the people of the Old Testament and their acts of faith, how we know they were true followers of God, this is one of those ways that we're told that the people cross through. This is a, an act of faith on their part. They cross through on dry land. When all seemed lost, God came through for them. At the lowest of moments, God works this paramount act of the Old Testament for his people. Most of us are familiar with this story. We know the details of how this works out, but the the, the character that we see here is God and his working faithfulness, right? He's the orchestrator of the safe passage for his people. He's the author of panic for the Egyptian chariots and their pursuing attempts. He's the executor of justice against the Egyptian army. And he's positioned everybody to see this. He's positioned his people so they can see him act faithfully in this way. Think about your own circumstances and how God does the same thing. How God will position you so that you can see him act faithfully. Well, for him to be faithful, it means him acting and working and moving in some troubling situations a lot of times, right? Uh, Think about the, the disciples, In a a similar case where we see God's authority over the sea, when they're out on their boat in the middle of the night and Jesus is asleep, right? He puts them in that position so they can see him act faithfully, so they can see him deliver them, so they can see his authority and his power over their circumstances. But for them to see that, for them to grasp that, for them to truly understand it, they have to experience it. They have to experience the troubled waters. They have to experience the the feeling of entrapment. They have to feel like there's no way out of this, right? They're they're rowing and they're trying to get back to shore and they can't. Like there's no way out of this for them unless Jesus just stops the storm, which he does. There's no way out of this for Israel unless God splits the sea and allows them to walk through, which he does. He positions us intentionally so we can see him act faithfully. Number two, The Lord will work miraculously because he plans supernaturally. The Lord will work miraculously because he plans supernaturally. Think about the truth of that, right? A lot of people want to downplay miracles, particularly today, that maybe God's out of the miracle working business, that he doesn't do these types of things anymore. Um, But think about the plans that God has right? Like these aren't like basic human plans. Like God has supernatural plans that he's carrying out, right? Like he's rescuing people out of darkness into light. He's taking people of little faith and giving them great faith, the type of faith that will persevere to the very end, the type of faith that will endure some of the harshest and hardest deception to ever come on this earth, Right? So in the end times, when, when, um, when we're waiting for Jesus to come back and, the, and the, the deception intensifies, and 2 Thessalonians talks about the man of lawlessness preaching and teaching and doing things in such a way that if possible, it would deceive even the elect. 
It's not possible, right? Because God works and moves supernaturally to build faith in people that doesn't falter with some of the greatest deceptive works that man's ever known. Those are supernatural plans. For God to do supernatural things, he has to work miraculously. So it makes sense for us to see the miracle here. Why do I say this? Because there's a lot of critics out there who tempt us to look at this as a natural thing that happens, to downplay God's involvement. All the commentaries that I looked at highlighted some of these these individuals who look for natural ways to explain away this phenomena. Right? They want to look at like the, the topography of Egypt and the land leading to the Red Sea and look at some of the natural occurrences that happened there, like wind patterns. And, and is it possible that something just natural was occurring that allowed for the Israelites to escape and ended up destroying the Egyptians? Right? And so they'll talk about uh, other historical events where winds blew like in great ways. Or they'll look at like the tides and the ebbing of the tides and how it's possible that during low tide, the Israelites found a place to cross. And then when the tides came back in, it thwarted the Egyptians from being able to cross. In fact, they'll even want to interpret the Red Sea into what's known as the Reed Sea, which is a different body of water completely that's really known more for its marshland type topography so that basically when that water kind of subsided, the uh, Israelites were able to cross and then the, the tides kind of came back in and it kind of filled back up into that area. They want us to see this as not something that God has done, but that nature just kind of can be explained as doing. There's some reasons in the text so that we can see this can't be a natural thing happening and that the supernatural is the only way to understand it. First of all, we have walls of water on both sides of the people, right? The picture here is that a supernatural wind is blowing through the middle or blowing to the sides in opposite directions to create these walls that the people walk through. Right, so as they're walking, the idea is that there, there's bodies of water on both sides, and yet the ground in front of them is completely dry. The point of the dry ground is mentioned time and time again in this text, to drive home the fact that this isn't natural. Even when the tides ebb and flow and the tides recede, like the land left behind is never dry immediately. And yet that's what we have here, the description being they walk on dry land. A supernatural wind cutting through the sea to create a dry path. Note the extensiveness of the wind. It blows all night for Israel. A wind so strong that it stops the water, but not the people, right? Like some people want to say, man, the wind was blowing so strong naturally that it created this situation. Think about how hard it would be to walk if the wind is blowing so hard naturally that it's, it's split the Red Sea in two, right? And you're just kind of like walking through like, man, this is awesome right? Like you can't walk through that speed of wind, right? Like you watch people during a hurricane that are, that are crazy enough to be there to try to report on what's happening, right? And I mean, they are like hunkered down, like burled down, like trying to figure out like, how do I report and not get blown over, right? And like they're, they're like, they're, they're like they, they can't walk around, right? Like it's, it's an intense type of wind, I mean, you guys, some of you have heard the story of our fishing trip a year ago with some of the guys, but the wind was so strong that it really felt like you were walking and having to push through an intense wind. There's no description of that here. Why? Because it's a supernatural wind, a supernatural wind that blows on both sides and yet doesn't blow in the middle and allows them to walk through. 
It stops blowing immediately when the enemy is in position for destruction. Think about the timing of this as well. The parting of the Red Sea starts and stops on cue from Moses' rod. It's a supernatural timing. This isn't a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing because God has supernatural plans, and for him to carry out supernatural plans, he has to work miracles. He has to work miracles. The major point of this passage is that Israel walked on dry ground to safety while the Egyptians stumbled on muddy ground to destruction. With an unconquerable army closing in and an impassable sea raging on, God makes a road where there is no human way. You say, Adam, why does that matter? Like, Why are you trying to drive that point home to us? Because we should expect God to work in miraculous ways today. Because what he has planned can only be described in supernatural terms. You should expect God to work miraculous things in your life. You should expect him to do things when there seems to be no way out of it. You should expect God to do things that defy our human understanding. Because he has plans that are supernatural. Plans for you, plans for your family, plans for me, plans for our church, plans for the the, the local churches in this area, plans for the global church around the world that are supernatural, right? Like he's, he's sending his son back to recreate everything around us, to usher us into eternity. We should expect that he's going to work miracles on a daily basis for us where, where, there's, where there's no human understanding for how God's going to provide in this situation, and yet he does. And we look around, and all of a sudden, Red Seas are parting around us, and there's ways that weren't previously there that all of a sudden are. That's the hope that's given to us today through this passage. We can go forward with a God who makes roads out of no ways. And then lastly, number three, we can see and believe in a God who fights for his glory and your good. He fights for your good. He fights for his glory. He positions himself in such a way where the enemy can't get to his people. He tells Moses to stretch out his hand to split the sea. The winds start blowing. The people start walking. There's walls of water around them. There's dry ground underneath them. And then when they've crossed, the Egyptians start to pursue. And they went in after them, verse 23 says, into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. The Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Number one here, the Lord releases the enemy as part of his plan for working his glory and your good. Notice what, what, what's happening here, and it's not specifically told to us, but this is the assumption that we should see in this passage, is that the pillar of fire moves so that the Egyptians can pursue. Why is that significant? Because, as we've already said, there are times where you can look around and say, I mean, the enemy's like, in my life right now. Like, there are things happening that, that are evil and not good to me right now. Like, if God is a shield and a mighty fortress, like, how is that happening? Like, how is that getting through? Like, why am I being impacted by, by sickness and death? Like, why are these things getting through this great shield and this great fortress and this great refuge? Well, what we see here is that God does release the enemy, He releases the enemy as part of his plan 
for working his glory and your good. Only after God determines the timing is right is the enemy allowed to filter through to his people. Let me say that again. Only after God determines the timing is right is the enemy allowed to filter through to his people. The enemy can't come through until God says, now's the time. And I have this picture in my mind of of Jesus just holding things back in our life. Like he won't let these things come. He won't let these things through. But as 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about, right, this, this great deception that's supposed to come on the earth, and yet it can't come until the one who's restraining it allows it to, right? So if you go back and read in 2 Thessalonians 2, where we were with our small groups this year, we're told that there comes a point where God says, okay, let's lift the restrainer. Let's let this thing out, right? And by letting it out, I'm gonna destroy it. It says that Jesus, by his breath, is gonna destroy the greatest evil on this planet. Just with his breath. I mean, he's just gonna speak it dead, speak it out of existence, speak it into judgment and destruction. But not until the timing comes, not until the right time comes. So if there's things that are kind of creeping into your life that, that aren't a direct result of your decision-making where maybe God's bringing uh, discipline into your life, right? Like these are just things that are just happening in your life. You didn't choose it. You're not responsible for it, but God seems to be allowing it And we can trust that God is orchestrating it. He's positioned you to receive it so that he can get the glory and that good can be worked in your life through it. I mean, I imagine the Israelites turned around and thought, wow, that was awesome, right? Like God just split the Red Sea open and we just walked through on dry ground and that cloud of fire back there is keeping the, wait, the cloud of fire is not there anymore. Like the Egyptians are still coming. And maybe panic would have started to set in again, like this, this is not doing anything, right? Like we can't get away from these people. Here they come again. God has allowed them through. He's not a great shield. He's not a great refuge. He's not a great fortress because here they come again. And in the midst of them panicking, probably once again, they see those waters close over their greatest enemy. The thing that's held them in check, the things that have kept them up at night, all of a sudden they're just buried in the sea. God allows those things through at the appropriate times for his glory and for our good. While Israel crosses safely, it becomes very clear that Egypt will not. The Egyptians start to look around and see that things have changed and their chariots are failing them. We're not told exactly what happens here, but the the, the wheels don't work like they should. Now, if you read in Psalm 77, which I'll reference again at the end, Psalm 77 seems to indicate that maybe a storm starts to brew in the midst of this to where the ground becomes no longer dry but muddy and that their, their chariots get clogged up in it. Because what they, what they realize is the God of Israel is fighting for them and he's fighting us. And they're like, we got to get out of here. Like we need to go home. And God doesn't let them. God doesn't let them. Their, their chariots won't get them out of this, right? The Bible tells us not to trust in chariots. The Egyptians have And now they see that their place of trust has failed them. They can't get out of this. And God extinguishes them. They cry out, the Lord fights for Israel against Egypt. This is exactly what God said was going to be the conclusion of this story. Right? Beginning of this, he says, we're going to do all this. Like I'm going to to tell you guys to stop. We're going the long route. That's going to protect you against the Philistines. But I'm going to tell you guys to stop and back up. I'm going to position you right here. I'm going to make Pharaoh change his mind and come try to get you. 
Because I want the Egyptians to forever know that I'm God. There's a scene in Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments, which is not biblically accurate because they have Pharaoh surviving this, but it is super um, climactic, which I think is why they did it. Uh, But it really makes a point of what happens here. just doesn't happen the way they do it. They have Pharaoh go home defeated, and he stands before his wife, who basically said, don't come home unless you kill Moses, and he sits down, and the only thing he can say is that the God of Moses is God. Like, he's completely broken. Now, we know that really that happens in the middle of the Red Sea, right? He makes the same statement. He just doesn't make it home to his wife. In the middle of the Red Sea, I pictured Pharaoh looking up and saying, the God of Israel is God. Like, I've, I've, I've massively undercalculated his capabilities, right? And he, he buries the enemy here. Number two, the Lord will always bury the enemy to give us reason to revere him, fear him, and believe him. And there's times where we feel like the enemy's burying us and our circumstances are burying us. Maybe there's troubles in our family, there's troubles at work, there's, there's troubles all around us, and we feel like there is no way out of this, there is no way home. Like there is no way to see this fixed. And we've tried everything humanly possible to fix it. We feel like we're being buried. We can trust that God has allowed those things through for a purpose. He's going to get the glory over it. He's going to be the one doing the burying. In the morning at daybreak, the passage tells us, things change. Verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hands over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. The Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned. They covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh and had followed them into the sea. Not one of them made, remained. People of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Verse 30. Man, let this set in. Because it's this God who fights for your good today. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. All of this was done for his glory. The waters came down on unrepentant sinners who were then forced to acknowledge him. This was done for the good of Israel, right? The waters prevent Egypt from pursuing them further. It also prevents Israel from going back to Egypt easily, right? Like think about how all of this was done. They're now in a position where it's like, hey, we should complain and go back to to Egypt. Well, well, how do we get across that? Because I don't think God's going to split that for us to go back to Egypt, right? Like think about the ways he worked good in this situation. He cut them off from the things that would be most dangerous to him. He cut the thing off and he cut any route back to that thing with the ways that he orchestrated these events. The people see his power, they feared him and they believed him. That's our goal going forward too, that we would see God working around us, we'd see his power, we'd fear him and we'd believe him. This becomes a confession for them, a confession of faith. In Deuteronomy 26, when they're settling into the promised land and there's ways for them to worship appropriately, and they're bringing worship to God. It says in verse 6, they're supposed to say, 
their response in worship is, the Egyptians treated us harshly, humiliated us, and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression, and the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They were to remember that they passed through these waters. They were saved. They were delivered. They were to never forget it. Every time moving forward, when they faced a situation that there was no way out of it, they were to remember that God always makes ways out of it. And God always delivers his people. The application for us today, number one, complaining doesn't help your predicaments. But believing the same God can pave a Red Sea road for you where there is no way does. And complaining doesn't help our predicaments, doesn't make them better, doesn't change them. But believing the same God that we are reading about now paves Red Sea roads today for us, that does change our predicaments, changes our perspective about them, allows us to receive them knowing that his glory and our good is at the forefront of his attention, and he will work it in a supernatural way. Number two, keep Psalm 77 as a source of hope. I read it to you last week when we concluded our sermon. I won't read it again today, but keep Psalm 77 as a source of hope. When you feel intense pain, you lack confidence in God, and you need a reminder of what he will do. The psalmist finds himself in a position where he's in intense pain. His circumstances are pressing in on him, He's lacking confidence in God. And then by the end of the psalm, he's reminded himself of the God who split the Red Sea open for his people. And it's instilled in him confidence by the end of the psalm. God's going to do the same thing for me. He's going to part the way. He's going to deliver me. Even though it feels like there is no way, he is going to deliver me. There's a great song that was written uh, not too long ago, it's called The Red Sea Road. I want to read to you some of the lyrics because the lady who wrote it wrote it when her church was going through an intense time of pain and suffering. They had lost people in their church. They had lost children in their church. They were grieving in the midst of despair over it. The lyrics read, We buried dreams, laid them deep into the earth behind us, said our goodbyes at the grave, but everything reminds us. God knows we ache. When he asks us to go on, how do we go on? We will sing to our souls. We won't bury our hope. Where he leads us to go, there's a Red Sea road. When we can't see the way, he will part the waves. He'll ne- we'll never walk alone down a Red Sea road. How can we trust when you say well, you will deliver us from all this pain that threatens to take over us? Well, this desert's dry, but the ocean may consume and we're scared to follow you. So we will sing to our souls, we won't bury our hope. Where he leads us to go, there's a Red Sea road. When we can't see the way, he will part the waves. We'll never walk alone down a Red Sea road. Oh, help us believe you are faithful. When our hearts are breaking, you are faithful. Oh, grant us eyes to see, you are faithful. Teach us to sing, you are faithful. We'll never walk alone down a Red Sea road. No, we'll never walk alone down a Red Sea road. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to worship here at the end. And then because God works in supernatural ways, we're going to um, participate in uh, baptism.
at the end of our service today, too. So you're going to be invited to stay. Adam will give you instructions, um, but we're excited to have a baptism today um, because God still works in supernatural ways. Let's pray together. God, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God who makes ways out of no ways. You do it by parting the waves that oftentimes feel like they're consuming us, surrounding us, and trying to bury us. God, help us to trust that any enemies that you've allowed into our life, you've done so purposefully. That if it was going to be harmful to us and it was going to be a detriment to our faith, you would have kept them out. Just like you did that night where you stood in the gap and you kept Egypt away from your people. But Lord, we also see there came a time to to lift the restraint and to let the enemy in so that you could gain the glory over the enemy so that the good of your people could be worked. And so God, help us to see that sometimes our circumstances feel like we're we're in the middle of the Red Sea drowning. But Lord, help us to see that you're going to drown the enemy and you're going to get the glory and that you're walking with us and that you're making ways before us because you're a God who has planned supernatural things for us. And the only way to get us there is, is through working miraculous things in our life. God, help us to see those things around us. Help us to see how you work and move for these purposes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.